and we're recording, right? We are we're recording. Awesome. Hello. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Of course, yeah. I'm Katie Halper, joined by... Gabe Pacheco. And we are so excited to be joined by... John Pat Leary. Only. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I stepped Oh, no. John Pat Leary. Yeah, I thought you. Yeah. I thought this was you're a professional comedian. That was the pun. That was a joke. <laughs> Are we okay? Yeah, I think okay. so. Maybe as a second backup, do you have an iPhone you can just do um, voice memo on? Uh, yeah. Great. Thanks. Hell yeah, we're all yeah. in the moment. <laughs> yeah, this is great. You can see this is a very slick operation. Yeah. Silicon Valley. Okay, great. <laughs> And it's a good thing that our guest was recording because, as you may hear from the quality of my voice as well as the voice of Gabe Pacheco, we had a bit of an issue recording from our end. The guest of whom I speak is none other than John Pat Leary, an associate professor of English at Wayne State University in Detroit. He is the author of A Cultural History of Underdevelopment, Latin America and the U.S. Imagination, as well as the book, Keywords, The New Language of Capitalism, which is what we discussed with him on this episode. The book is a lexicon of the contemporary age of inequality, which decodes the new vocabulary of capitalism for a broad readership. So it basically functions as a glossary. Keywords all share a celebration of the decisive leadership, dreamy artistry, prophetic vision, and inexhaustible commitment to work, the pillars of an ideal, innovative self. Make sure you become Patreon supporters so you can hear John Pat Leary explaining why he wrote the book and reading some of his favorite terms from the book. Also, the newly relevant discussion I had with Matt Taibbi, which explains, and I can't believe we need to explain this in 2019, but if you haven't heard, Bernie Sanders is being called a conspiracy theorist because he suggested that maybe, just maybe, Jeff Bezos' ownership of the Washington Post may influence the coverage of him. So um, if you haven't already heard it, Walker Bragman and I sat down with Matt Taibbi and talked about how media censorship works and how it's not always explicit. Sometimes it is, but often it isn't. So go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. John Pat, you're calling us from uh, Portugal? That's right. Yeah. Hell yeah. So what time is it over there right now? Uh, it's about nine o'clock. All right. Well, PM. thank you for making time in your late uh, evening for us. <laughs> yeah. Are you yeah. about to eat dinner in a couple of hours? <laughs> well, I'm not really on the, the local schedule for eating dinner at 9 o'clock, so no, I ate yeah. already. So they must think you're you're kind of strange. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, it's difficult with small children that you don't want to feed them at 9 o'clock. Well, do Portuguese kids just run around outside in the plazas until midnight? I haven't really figured that out. I'm kind of, I'm not totally sure about that. I think, I think some do, and... And some don't. Right. Uh, I love uh, the Mediterranean lifestyle. I was in Greece a couple of years back, and I was in this plaza in uh, Kalambaka, and all the kids were out until like 1 a.m., and the parents <laughs> were just at the tables. And whenever a bored child came up and tried to talk to their parents, the parents would just open up a pack of cigarettes and have the kids count them. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say would like smoke yeah, and blow smoke into their faces or something. So, yeah. so they were learning. It was education. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was a, a, a different parenting lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get into that general lifestyle. In, in Lisbon? I'm teaching at um, the University of Lisbon. I have, the, I have a Fulbright fellowship here. <gasps> That's fancy. Yeah. Well, like I mean, it? it's sort of fancy. Uh, yeah, I like it a lot. I mean, I like living here a lot. It's, it's a refreshing change to be in even a even what passes for a poor country in the EU, it's like so much, the quality of life is so much higher than yeah. in the United States. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot of opportunities there to sort of innovate and be disruptive. <laughs> yeah, create good content. There are fewer that I can, I mean, that you know, innovasal is a word that I've had to come across a few times, but it's not as ubiquitous as innovation is. Oh, innovasal, got it, yeah. yeah. Um, so you're when you get a Fulbright, you can either be teaching or doing research. Is that right? Well, there's just different ones you apply to. So this was like a teaching one that is just at the University of Lisbon all the time, and I was eligible to apply for it. And we'd been I've been to, to Portugal once and liked it, so it was kind of just a, a whim that it would be a fun place to spend six months. Yeah, I uh, I was in Portugal. I really liked it. I was coming from Spain. I thought the people in in Lisbon were much nicer than the people in Madrid. By the way. Yeah, that had, that's the reputation. Yeah. 
Because people in Madrid are snooty and think they own the world still or something? I don't know if that's it. Have you been to? Have you been there? I've never been there. I've just heard that here about <laughs> people in Madrid. I think they're surprisingly like um, parochial in Madrid, and that maybe sounds problematic. And I've been accused once of orientalizing Spain, which I think is funny because I don't think that Said meant Jews talking about Spain um, <laughs> when he wrote that. I don't even Opus. know what parochial means in this context. Narrow? What does? Oh, professor, please tell us what it means. It means narrow. <laughs> It means narrow, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. For a capital city, they're not that cosmopolitan. That's what I'll say. It's not their fault. They were living under dictatorship from 39 to 75. This is kind of problematic. But you know what? I mean, I feel like as a, some of the few people, one of the few groups that I'm allowed to as a, a Jewess, you know, I can, I can kind of make fun of Italians, kind of make fun of Spaniards, kind of make fun of Portuguese, <laughs> Irish a little bit, not as much. They had it pretty bad. Right. They had it pretty bad. And Portuguese and Italians, well, Southern Italians have had bad stuff happen to them. Anyway, I'm just going to own it without worrying about whether it's problematic. I do think that Madrid, it's like they have this interesting thing where they just call people slurs, like to their faces. They also do this thing where if you order a meal and it's like a chicken and it comes with French fries and you just don't want the French fries, you don't even want a substitute. You just don't want the fries. They're like, impossible que no se hace. They just like, can't do it. It's just not done. And then, they're, they're not nimble in the way they take words. No, not at all. Yeah. That's what kind of obtuse. I yeah. kind of appreciate that, though. Why would you not want the French fries? Well, it's true. And I, and I think that maybe that's a good, like, body image, healthy attitude. They're like, tío, ¿por qué no puedes dar esos papas fritas a alguien? Yeah, it's true. You can just hand them out, man. It's true, yeah, stand in the closet, yeah. That's what happens with me. Anytime people give me, like, a treat, yeah. I never say no, I take it. You offer me a piece of gum, I'll take it. And then I'll just, you know, hand it off later as sort of goodwill currency. Right. What if they offer you something with nuts? That's right. I just say thank you very much. If it's in packaging, I keep it. You keep it and you and hand it back to someone not allergic. I give it to a person yeah. later. Right. Or a an unintended child. Yeah. I don't care. Um, so, but do you ask them if they have allergies? Mm, often. Often, but not, <laughs> sometimes you like to throw a curveball. Yeah. Especially if there's not an EpiPen, it really it's, raises the It's the really space. like testing people's life skills. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How resourceful they are. So tell us what you're doing in, you're, you're teaching right now in Portugal. I'm just uh, teaching these two classes. One of them is like a kind of introduction to American culture for um undergraduates and another is a class on um marxism but don't but i i didn't really tell the state department that that's what i was going to be teaching so uh oh there are a lot of state department fans of <laughs> you know, so you yeah i think they're listening so, so don't so don't tag the fulbright foundation or anything in the yeah. in the tweet that you do so how did you get interested in marxism because this is kind of a commun a neo-communist manifesto right <laughs> well, that's flattering. Uh, I mean, I got into it in college, I guess. Well, really high school. Um, I mean, not Marxism in high school. I didn't really, like, know, I didn't really read it at that level in, in, uh, in high school. But, like, you know, just, it was the sort of, the, yeah, it was like the, the, the way to be um, intellectually, uh, like, Rebellious, I guess. So it's what I got into in college. This is a, a little, like, um, maybe some background that uh, John <laughs> Pat and I were at the same all-boys Catholic school in uh, sixth and seventh grade, and we had to do, um, we uh, we got confirmed. Were we in the same confirmation? No, class? no, no. I didn't get confirmed. You got confirmed. But I, I, I wasn't, uh, I was never actually baptized, so I wasn't eligible to be confirmed. Whoa. Did you so rebel? you're still going to hell. <laughs> yeah. No, I was in the, like, uh, the, you know, when you were in the confirmation class doing your catechism or wherever you did there, I was in the class with all the, like, Protestants and, like, the Jewish kid in our class. And, oh, okay. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember, so one thing, I do remember that at, at uh, St. Anselm's, in, the, in that class, we watched um, uh, the Raul Julia's uh, presentation of um, Archbishop Romero. And okay. so there was, on some level at St. Anselm's, this uh, <laughs> understanding of liberation theology. Like, it wasn't hardcore, but we did get a taste of it. And we also had to watch The Mission, which was um, Robert De Niro's take as a slave trader in uh, Brazil, I think. Did you put in all the chilies? 
did. I'm sorry. I, I was trained as a mercenary, not as a cook. This is true. It's dreadful. Uh, who then, you know, sees the light in fights. Yeah, I've seen that. Indigenous. Father, I want to thank you for having me here. You should thank the Guarani. Read this. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. But now abideth faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. But did you also have the the that um, March for Life guy, the the religion Whoa. teacher? Okay, so yeah, so Saint Anselm was this crazy uh, petri dish of insane ideas as well. So we had um, we we did watch the Silent Scream at one point in a religious <laughs> class. I think I know a little bit about abortion. For a period of two years, I was the director of the largest abortion clinic in the Western world. Now, for the first time. We have the technology to see abortion from the victim's vantage point. We are going to watch a child being torn apart, dismembered, disarticulated, crushed, and destroyed by the unfeeling steel instruments of the abortionist. And that was uh, intense. I think we should all, here and now, devote ourselves to an untiring effort to devise a better solution, a solution compounded equally of love and a decent regard for the overriding priority of human life. Let's all, here and now, stop the killing. And also, the Legionaries of Christ, which were the, uh, like, youth outreach portion of the Opus Dei Whoa. were coming into the school trying to get yeah. us at a, at a young age. Did they wear little things on their legs, the cuffs? Uh, they didn't wear the cuffs. They just invited us out to go camping with them and play, um, like, uh, what is it, capture the flag on golf courses in the suburbs. And go to uh, King's Dominion, the amusement yeah, park. Yeah, they, they took us to King's Dominion, but, well, that was the, that was the bait. Well, I, I didn't ever go. I wasn't allowed. My mom wouldn't let me go on it yet, so. Wait, so what's going on? You're Protestant or? You're no, Protestant I, I just like, I, I am a child of a mixed marriage, I guess. Catholic, Protestant, mixed marriage. My mom, you know, the, the local parish priest, like, thought my mother was wicked for having married outside the church, so we never went to church. And as a consequence, I was never baptized. Oh, got it. So maybe that's what made you kind of Marx friendly, because you were already, like, skeptical of religion. It wasn't that far from that to Ethiopia of the masses. But I also think being Catholic makes you kind of, can make you susceptible to Marxism because they're both sort of ornate, com ornate complicated, oh. potentially socialist, you know, ways of reading the world, you know? Right. Ironic that he was a Jew turned Lutheran, but it all comes full circle. <laughs> um, so how did you, this is, by the way, a really good book. Thank you. Yeah, I've been following the. Uh, I've been following since uh, keywords uh, for austerity. I think the blog. Yeah, uh, I had to. I had to change the title to make it a little more reader friendly. Sure, sure, sure. So I was following it on Facebook uh, through that, and I always found your post to be hilarious, and uh, like uh, Ambrose Pierce's um, Devil's Dictionary. Yeah, that was yeah. one of my uh, one of my models. I'm a big fan of Ambrose Pierce. Yeah, and it also made me think about like uh, George Carlin and a lot of what George, you know, just going through old stand-up and he, him skewering euphemisms and sort of newspeak and uh, ways that uh, corporations like talk to us and uh, to basically hide the truth. So what would what, what did what would what were some of the ones he did? Do you remember? Uh, he just had entire bits, but he, he had one, uh, uh, later in his career, he had one bit that was like almost a slam poem and we, and where he, he talks about being a, 
a modern man. I'm a modern man, a man for the millennium, digital and smoke-free, a diversified multicultural postmodern deconstructionist, politically, anatomically, and ecologically incorrect. Who uploads and, uh, and uh, downgrades. I've been uplinked and downloaded, I've been inputted and outsourced, I know the upside of downsizing, I know the downside of upgrading. I'm a high-tech lowlife, a cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, bi-coastal multitasker, and I can give you a gigabyte in a nanosecond. And sort of he just uses every possible new term he's uh like showing that he's hip to the new slang mm -hmm. but by putting it all together in this big word salad <laughs> you see how absurd all of it is i'm new wave but i'm old school and my inner child is outward bound i'm a hot-wired heat-seeking warm-hearted cool customer voice activated and biodegradable i interface with my database my database is in cyberspace so i'm interactive i'm hyperactive and from time to time i'm radioactive yeah right so i mean that's basically uh a lot of my source material like bloomberg or forbes.com and the harvard business review yeah it's kind and, of and even in turned my brain to it's kind of turned my brain to mush i feel like having you know researched the the book and been so deep into stuff that is just basically at a fundamental level just kind of stupid you know right <laughs> yeah but you're writing about it in a smart way obviously well um, thank you how did can you explain your trajectory because it's interesting you're an english professor yeah your first book was called a, a cultural history of underdevelopment latin america and the u.s imagination yeah and now you've <laughs> written this book keywords the new language of capitalism so what do these things have to do with each other are they a trajectory are they just disparate interests um well the i mean the the english professor thing and this one seemed to me not to be that seems to be a coherent <laughs> trajectory because right. you know it's about like the politics of language and how language is um used and abused and that's kind of you know part of teaching and studying literature but uh yeah the first one i mean that you know that the cultural history of development book came out of my you know my doctoral dissertation and it's um so it was more about came out of interests I had at the time that were more oriented toward Latin America, but you know it's it's they're both about um, the evolution of certain like conventional ideas about uh, the economy and the American economy. So in, in a certain way, they're about like the culture of wealth and poverty, I guess, and the way that those are. Uh, understood and also strategically misunderstood. Well, it's funny. Uh, you're. I was just thinking about like um, extreme poverty, and Howard Schultz wanted to. Uh, yeah, the wealth wealth people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was like, let's let's call ourselves people of means, you know, because billionaires has become a new target for bullies. Right. So uh, it, it, we're people of means uh, or palms, which uh, kind of I see as a play yeah. on uh, uh, POCs, you know, POMs. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or you could say people of capital, and then it would be POC. Yeah, you could do that, too. You could. You could rebrand. Yeah. Yeah, he said people of, um, also people of wealth. Yeah. Which would or be POWs. POWs. That's great. Which in Ayn Randy and Worldview, they're being, uh, they are being held uh, captive by the uh, yeah. unwashed masses. Right, by the welfare state. Yeah, you don't understand social it. social safety net. Yeah. That uh, stifles innovation. We have to liberate uh, capital. <laughs> and how did your um so what how do you come up with this idea what made you write it and why did you it's really cool because you write it as a kind of like a glossary yeah uh, what made you do that well so i mean the glossary organization and the title are both kind of nods to uh raymond williams book keywords you know it's like the the one of the classics of marxist literary criticism from the 70s and um it was a book that's like, it's a lot different sort of in style and in tone than mine, but um, basically the the premise that you can figure out a lot of what um, is fundamental or is um, powerful in a particular society by going to the language that is that circulates in that society and by kind of like digging into it, you can, um, it, language can function like a like a key you know and to open up a particular way of looking at the world and so that's the inspiration 
And then the more like immediate inspiration for the subject of the book, like to talk about these kind of what you might call buzzwords or, um, you know, con like the, the language of innovation and entrepreneurship and so forth just came out of like my irritation with hearing all that stuff. Um, so it's a, the book is like a labor of, of, of hate, kind of. Right, right. L-O-H. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I just think about how in entertainment, at least, um, I, I would think of entertainers as sort of, what, they're one-man corporations, and we're constantly um, in a freelance gig economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this idea of having a personal brand has always been... Uh, part of we were the early adopters to using social media, the yeah. early adopters to this sort of very libertarian worldview that has now become the default for people growing up and getting an education. It's like, what's your personal brand? Are you on brand? Are you you're always selling yourself to the next employer? Yeah, within right. this paradigm where we've all become. Every, every person who's really indoctrinated in neoliberalism has kind of become their own LLC. Right. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's, true of, that's true of me, too. I mean, it's true of, like, uh, like academics are all supposed to be on Twitter, like, pushing their, <laughs> you know, and they're, like, yeah. not yeah. generally good at it, but, I mean, it's part of the, um, sort of part of the, it's a job requirement, especially if the younger you are, I think. Yeah, so it's be, publish or perish has become uh, like tweet or, perish. tweet or be terminated. <laughs> yeah, tweet or termination, yeah. Can I ask you a basic uh, question that I think kind of gets to the gist of the book? Yeah. Uh, which I just made kind of turn from inter interrogative to uh, declarative. But you say identifying what makes our moment unique or not is no easy task, in part because we are living in it and in part because the language we have to understand and describe our errors inequality is itself one of the instruments of perpetuating it. How can we think and act critically in the present when the very medium of the present language constantly betrays us? Speak on it. What is this betrayal? <laughs> um, well, I mean, so that gets to the problem that's a distinctive feature of a lot of the words I talk about, which is that there are, you know, at, on one level, there are ways of just uh, disguising people of wealth and their the accumulation of wealth. But on the other hand, the they are also terms that describe a certain kind of liberation, uh, freedom. They describe like artistic practice or artistic work, you know, creativity being one of the kind of fundamental, I think, uh, parts of the vocabulary of neoliberalism. And so they're, so, you know, everywhere you turn, if you turn to, well, I'm going to escape the rat race with, by embracing art or something, you know, like that's something that might have once seemed like a way to avoid, um, you know, the culture of business, but that's now the language of business, you know, is like a being a creative entrepreneur. And where empowerment is a word, which is a word that I talk about, you know, originates out of a uh, feminist movement and also out of the black power movement, which is, a, you know, the black power is a kind of leads to the, the, the idea of empowerment to um, give working class and poor black people and give poor women in particular um, a sense of control over the every the the kind of everyday oppressions and everyday labors of their lives that are not like addressed when you're talking in big picture terms about politics and so forth. I mean that's where empowerment comes from, and but now it's like a slogan for um, any any kind of advertising product and any kind of political advertising product aim, aimed at female consumers. So it's like a everywhere you turn, what what were once formerly safe kind of concepts or concepts that might lead you to a place of escape are, are just ways of routing you back into the work of making money. Right. Well, it's like, uh, I just think immediately about um, watching, well, for, for any creative, the, in the <laughs> last 15 years to see the shift where my friends now say we are corporate creatives. So it just means that you make ads for companies. Like if you work for Vice, you're a corporate creative. Do people self- Identify as corporate creatives? I think so. Yeah, in New York, absolutely. If you work for an ad agency, you know, if you're a photographer, but you're making, you're just out there shooting models, 
you're now the corporate creative. You're making the ads. Yeah, I mean, and the the use of the noun form creative is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that so like that's the kind of thing that originally got me started on this it was just you know a lot of people roll their eyes at that kind of thing. I mean it's it's just like it's an it's annoying um, and it's kind of glib and you know cutesy and stuff but but i guess so that was sort of like the in, the impetus for me starting is like why is it annoying um why is it so annoying to hear right. creative used in this way and to hear innovation used so ubiquitously and that's kind of like why i started writing it yeah i think that empowerment is probably if we were going to choose one for me personally that's probably the word that i hate the most in terms of its um commodification or co-optation or hijacking. Yeah. And it reminds me a bit of the Combahee um, River Collective, which mm-hmm. are, you know, the, the people who, the black lesbians who started the, who came up with the term identity politics. Right. Which was intended to mean basically the opposite of what, of the way it's hijacked nowadays, mm-hmm. at, at least by certain people. Most people, when they use it, and it's a hard thing to talk about because there's no common established definition of it but empowerment as kind of an individualist an individualistic and individual uplift right that actually goes against the collective uplift mm-hmm. and becomes kind of a tool of capitalism and not a tool against it yeah um, yeah it's a word that's kind of like um sustainability which is another one i talk about in the in the book in that it's <laughs> it's like a description of what seems to be uh rebellious or liberating practice yeah but it's but it's so relative in its meaning so like empowerment just you know it doesn't mean power it doesn't mean overpowering it just means well you're slightly more empowered than you were yesterday and sustainable just means more sustainable than something that's less sustainable so none of these things like really look forward to any kind of like horizon that you could define or describe it's just kind of less miserable than a more miserable thing you know or, or what they both kind of ultimately boil down to and do you see this how much do you see this in like politics today or in the elections or um the discussion about i mean i i think of course all the time about the discussion of uh electoral politics the presidential race mm-hmm. um i think that i mean i've we've said this before i've said this before on the show but how there really was this this schism between maybe left and liberal, and that's a whole other question about what we call these things, mm-hmm. but there really was a, a, a kind of break between two camps, one of which is about like individual empowerment, how much you relate to someone's journey. <laughs> you may be able to tell I'm a Bernie over Hillary person or a Bernie <laughs> over Kamala person or Bernie over anyone else. <laughs> these two types of feminism and racial justice even, right? What happens is that people, I think, can conflate individual experience and the individual experience of someone who belongs to an oppressed group. Mm-hmm. That, like, de facto is the woke, progressive, rebellious thing yeah regardless of how it affects the the less empowered more powerless within that same group yeah 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 and i mean a common denominator with a lot of the language that um that i talk about and it's embraced you know in the kind of more orthodox which is to say almost all the democratic party for the reasons you just said are these kinds of ways of thinking about, you know, economic success and, and wealth, but all, always in these kind of individualist terms um, and never in any kind of, like, you know, the, the there's no notion of solidarity that finds its way into right. my book because there's no way you could kind of wrestle that into some form that would be um, accommodated with, like, just... Uh, starting a business and becoming wildly successful by yourself. So there are all these words that are about, you know, individual uh, success and individual achievement, individual overcoming and so forth. And the assumption is always that that is sort of by, by default kind of good for the, for the collective. I mean, you know, the Hillary Clinton example being a kind of obvious one in which feminism is realized or something and an individual's uh, like ascent to a, to a prominent position rather than in, um, a, a set of policies that would like benefit a collective of people. I just want all uh, female or 
wardens for the yeah. prisons. <laughs> to be women. That would be the best. Yeah, I agree. I want all like de- I want all lethal injection administrators to be women of color. All drone pilots. Yeah. That would be the best for me. I, I mean, did I did do a little um, survey during in 2016. And I did find, and you might appreciate this, that in you know the Bernie Sanders uh, campaign website on his economic policy, he never he never did once use the words innovation or entrepreneurship anywhere <laughs> anywhere in the entire website. And you know the Hillary Clinton website, it was like they were going out of style. You know, they, right. like every third word was innovation. So was that because Bernie was too busy using um, slurs against women and people of color <laughs> to fit any of those words in? You know, it's easy, it's easy when uh, you're a straight white man, it's easy to not shield rapists and sexual harassers. Yeah, there weren't many words left over for him, so. Yeah. Um, I, got, I have questions yeah. about your time in Detroit, too. Oh, yeah. Right? So did you, what was that experience like, seeing the city... <laughs> going through everything it's going yeah. through and being a leftist academic. <laughs> well, that's a, I mean, that's a long story potentially. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, when we, when we, when we moved there, when we moved there in like 2007, yeah. Um, which was, you know, like a really bad time i mean even by detroit standards i think a bad time so um you know the in which the foreclosure crisis was was really hitting the city hard and there was no particular um optimism about the future no uh, hope or change possible eric allen was right yeah and there, and um and you know there was this also this sense though and it's the thing that i kind of um like that, that attracted me to so much of the city and that I still, that I kind of miss a lot, um, is cause it's, I feel like it's not as, not as tangible anymore is the, you know, just like a sense of like shared hardship, shared struggle. We're all in this together. People who lived in Detroit were always like, were really cared a lot about it knew a lot about it. We're from, you know, almost in every, every case was from there because why would you move there? Right. Um, unless you're you <laughs> unless you're like a peculiar sort of person that got a you know a job in this like right. strange um you know institution there like a hospital or a right. university or something so um and then like it changed a lot you know in 2007 people we you know i remember making like jokes about gentrification like how, how it could never happen or how, like at least I'm in a place where that'll never happen. And, um, because you know, the, the one thing you know about Detroit is there's so much empty space and then fast forward 10 years and it's, um, it's not a joke anymore. <laughs> so the, yeah. the city's changed a lot. Um, you know, it's, it's more welcome to the kinds of fantasies about, uh, entrepreneurial heroism and so forth that I talk about than it was when I moved there. You know, it's it, and that that's like the kind of the big hope now is through uh, real estate entrepreneurs and private investment and new restaurants and so forth. There's a revival going on. I mean, I'm obviously very skeptical about it. And like in certain ways, you know, things are have improved. In certain ways, like the lights, the public lighting is better than it used to be. But and can you talk about? I mean, one of the words that's always talked about, and yeah. you talk about the debate about this is neoliberalism. Yeah. And does that qualify as a keyword or is that a buzzword? Well, and what do you think about its usefulness? Well, it, it, it qualifies as a, a certain kind of keyword, not for me in terms of the, what the book's about, because uh, neoliberalism is like inherently a critical word. And I'm, I'm, oh, all of my um, terms I talk about in the book are like the vocabulary of capitalism rather than right. vocabulary against it. So, right. but you know, neoliberalism. Um, <sighs> I, I'm kind of um, I was kind of reluctant to even get into it in the in the book because I feel like there's a there's a kind of long and kind of useless argument about you know whether it, whether you should say it whether it means anything and whether it's proper to say it and um, basically my position is like you know who cares what term you use uh, if you are describing what you intend to describe. And, uh, you know, there's like, there are people who will write these, you know, 10,000 word 
um, essays in Dissent magazine or something about like how leftists should no longer say neoliberalism because of this and that, and which is I think is like, like the most pointless um, kind of exercise you could get into because people will call things what they want to call things, whether right. you tell them to or not. Um, how do we how do we talk about these things? Like I mean, you talk about like capitalism, but it seems like there's this difficult thing to navigate, which is like we're critiquing power. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing is critiquing power and you're critiquing like the illusion of, of um, outside the box thinking. Yeah. That's actually very much inside the box. That's very like power perpetuating. Yeah. Which on a kind of meta level, it's like, okay, you're an academic, you're writing this book and I'm not like crapping on the power of analysis or saying like you have to be out in the field or the factory to be part of a, an anti-capitalist struggle. Mm-hmm. But like, what is, how does this work as a tool, this analysis? Is it prepping people to be more on guard about this stuff? Um, is it, are you like pulling back a curtain on things? Is it just, uh, does it have any material effect? Yeah, well, that's a good question I that I ask myself all the time, actually. Um, and I don't know that I have a great answer for it because, um, I mean, my the answers that I would give would be some combination of, um, everything you just said, I guess. Um, I hope it gives people, you know, at, at like the most basic level, I hope that it gives people a sense of um, having their hatreds um, vindicated, you know? If uh-huh. people who hate hearing empowerment now can have like, can feel the satisfaction of knowing why they hate empowerment. Right. Um, which I don't think is, you know, Nothing. I mean, there's something to um, being able to kind of arm yourself to go out into a kind of um, hostile world. But but I also kind of hope that people who are, you know, broadly speaking of the left will be um, kind of vigilant against, you know, smuggling in with some of these words. Because some of these, these words aren't all just in Forbes magazine. They're also in, like, The Nation and... Um, right other you know and like in the art world and so forth and i hope people will be vigilant against smuggling in some of these kinds of property private property worshiping uh individualism venerating kind of concepts that um that kind of cloud i think our political imagination so like the stakeholder being one example of of that you know a word that was coined by an anti-new deal economist, um, a concept that's coined by an anti-New Deal economist to popularize the idea of a, a socially responsible corporation at a moment when people were making, you know, broad-based social and labor movements to hold corporations accountable. So stakeholderism is like a, you know, there's something sort of insidious about the idea that, well, we are all participants um, we are all responsible for the success of this firm that's in our neighborhood because we're all stakeholders. I and, mean, you know, right. we're not, we're not all, we may be all stakeholders, but we don't all have the same stakes, you know? So. Yeah. I, I joined the uh, New York city teaching fellows when I first moved to New York city. And oh, right, that yeah. was a hyper um, rugged individualist, yeah. pull yourself up by your bootstraps uh, program that basically was sending in um, high, uh, college graduates to be uh, union busters to yeah. some degree in the public school system. And, you know, I didn't see it that way when I joined, but now I do. And we were all indoctrinated with this very um, uh, masochistic uh, worldview of being um, everything was on our shoulders. Mm-hmm. So you as the foot soldier at the very bottom of the hierarchy and the pyramid in the education system are going to be a foot soldier for radically transforming these um schools yeah by going by not being engaged in the union by being a an innovator and by um really addressing the needs of all the stakeholders in the building (laughs) so it was super corporate language uh around you know using new tech and uh coming and thinking outside of the box to uh to to be an agent of change yeah, and I mean, and to me, like, um, the, you know, maybe it's helped by being away and looking from afar, but, you know, the the political moment in the United States is on the one hand, you know, terrible, but on the other hand, 
um, in certain perverse ways, maybe more hopeful than I can ever remember being in the sense that there's a, there is more of a, I think a widespread, well, certainly a more widespread, um, embrace of socialism than ever before in my lifetime and, and in many years before that, but also just a bigger sense of like politics as a, as a, a collective endeavor and as a, something that is, um, done through struggle, you know? And so my book might have like some small part to, to play in just sort of, uh, nurturing that sense, you know, I think at least like, that's what I hope. And that, and that, and the, and the increasing sense of skepticism and scorn for the, um, the elite, whether they're, which regardless of what party they're from, but the, you know, the political and economic elite that are kind of hustling this, this, this language and these ideas of um, solitary work until you die, basically. Right. Well, I also, I just, uh, uh, Katie's skimming through the book and I immediately just saw human capital. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also as a term that I always hated, but couldn't figure out exactly why. And then, uh, you know, the breakdown of, you know, what, what the connotations of what that means when you think about, well, this person is worth this much, like to put a value on an individual. Yeah. And then that's basically, it's like selling horses or selling people. Yeah. And block. the thing that amazed me about it, the history of that term is that it, it, it's initial inventors were like really worried about the fact that everybody would think of slavery when they heard the phrase human capital. As they should have been. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, this is a problem. You know, it's, it, unfortunately the word makes us think about slavery and, and now that's not, no one, no one really seems to be disturbed by that as much. I mean, I think you just said you were and I I was, but uh, it's always remarkable to me how that word, it's so perverse, the phrase human capital, it's so creepy and it circulates so, Cheerfully, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, there's also, I mean, you talk about hegemony and also a sense of normal reality. Yeah. Which I think is something that's very much a question of language, right? Like, I think we can underestimate the power of words in, in, in politics and in material reality mm-hmm. because they're just words, you know, who cares? I mean, there's a whole debate about words and power, but yeah. I do think just having terms for things makes them that much more acceptable mm-hmm. and that much more normal. And also, I mean, this whole thing about what's doable or feasible. Yeah. Um, when you present things in a way that makes it sound like radical, like, mm-hmm. I think personally that Obama said the public option on purpose because he wanted to scare people uh, about it and mm-hmm. make it sound like gulagi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do think that the like vanillification of certain things, um, and again, like with Sanders, it's this it, it it takes away from potential outrage. It like preempts outrage. Yeah. And I think that the pushing back on it is just calling things out, right? Like. These things that we talk about, human capital or, um, you know, universal health care, universal coverage. What does that mean? It sounds great. It's universal mm-hmm. coverage. That's great. But no one wants to talk about, like, the nuts and bolts of it. So we yeah. just have this nice, touchy-feely, amorphous thing that people can point to and signal to. Well, as long as there's still a, an employer's option. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and like you know, and and as long as there's choice, that's another thing. You know, right. the the as long as you have some choice in the marketplace, you are right. free to choose, and therefore, what are you complaining about? Um, and the yeah, I th- I do think that the power to name things is quite important. I think it's a power that the um, that the right wing is recognized more eagerly than yeah. than anyone. Um, you know, you think about all their great success stories in terms of. Uh, laying claim to certain concepts, you know, right to work, death tax, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking pro about life. death tax. Pro-life, yeah. yeah, pro-life, right. Um, what is it, the clean air, uh, whatever, their, like, pollution thing that they call clear air, clear skies or something? I don't know clear that one. Act. Yeah. I just know about good, clean, natural coal. Natural coal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, and, you know, like, the the history of innovation is, also, is sort of a product of um, – anti-New Deal right-wingers 
trying to find a way to talk about uh, the economy in a way that would nullify the word security and the words and the four freedoms that Roosevelt was so successful at, at um, promoting and during the depression. So, you know, they would, they like, sorry. Can you remind people what those were? Freedom from want. Which translated into world terms means economic understandings, which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. Freedom from fear. Which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. And then two others, I can't remember. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. But the point was like for right-wingers in that period, they were like seriously on the defensive and they were always kind of casting around for like, how can we talk about, um, how can we talk about big business in a way that will, that will make people uh, love big business again the way they did in the 20s? And, you know, it's funny to see how they were, they were so angry about the word security, like as in social security, because it was, it, it, it was so successful and people liked security. Um, and, but it seemed to connote, you know, lazy, um, take, you know, lazy, good for nothing, elderly people sitting around not working and so forth. Uh, I love security too. That's why I like gated communities, <laughs> uh, the national security state apparatus. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, security has some. Security is not a not a pure word, but like, but innovation comes out of like how we need to make we need to make um, uh, business sexy again in a moment when it was widely reviled, and so like that's kind of where that in a lot of ways that's where that word comes from. And we're living in kind of the long aftermath of a successful campaign to, you know, to re to rebrand, if I may, um, the free market in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, um, a thing uh, that I always think about with language and power and stuff is like Mark saying, "This is going to happen, right?" There's going to be a revolution. Mm -hmm. Like communism's going to happen, socialism and communism. And also he says workers of the world unite, right? Mm -hmm. You have nothing to lose but your chains. Mm -hmm. And so the the role of language in the material world and in shaping reality, mm -hmm. these things are as much as we kind of dismiss intellectualism as hoity toity and analysis. <laughs> I mean there are two things. One is I think they are powerful. And we see someone like and you don't have to be a straight white man to to use them, like Fidel Castro used them. There's this interesting, like, is that a, is that a contradiction of Marx, or is that a an example of Marxism? Does he pretending to be more of a social scientist than he is an agitator? Um, well, I think um, he. I mean, he talks in the manifesto. Well, they they Engels and Marx write in the right. manifesto. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they do write in the manifesto about. Um, you know, the, a role for the intellectual and they do talk about, I mean, Marx talks about, you know, to a small degree talks about language as being something that itself has to be revolutionized in order to do the work of analyzing the world. So, you know, he says like at some, he says at the beginning of capital, we couldn't spare the reader, um, some complicated new terms because, the old terms are a product of the society that we are aiming to overthrow. So I don't. You can't really separate the work of analysis in his terms from um, from the work of political organization. I mean, and he's you know his fam the famous line: uh, "Philosophers have only interpreted the world. The right. real purpose is to change it." Is you know, it's worth. I think it's it's a I think it's correct and worth remembering. So I don't think that for him it would be 
they would be separate things. Right. Just giving you an opening, by the way. So, you know, your next interview, you can be like, well, I like to consider myself the uh, <laughs> Karl Marx of the 21st century. <laughs> uh, I mean, I just, but I actually do think that that's, that's what I think about, because I think sometimes the left can be in this very annoying virtue signaling way, kind of dismissive of intellectualism yeah. and theory. Um, and I think it's kind of an American thing yeah, also. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought it's a. It was a great book because it put all of these words that irritate me in one place, so <laughs> I could see them all there. And it was kind of once you see them uh, in this book. Now, when I walk around outside, it's they the keywords sort of glow like yeah. like there's a highlighter that's been put under all of them. So you're sort of like Rowdy Roddy Piper, and um, they live yeah, walking around. This. Dude, look, you gotta get John Pat Leary's yeah. keywords, a new language of capitalism, and this book acts like a pair of Ray-Bans that you can put on, brother, and man, you'll see the, you'll see the reptiles. You'll see them. Were, were there any any words that didn't make it that you wanted to add in, but you didn't have the time or the page numbers to include that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, yes, and now I'm struggling to remember what they were. Um Shit, what were they? You, if you forget them, you can call in. Uh, there was okay. a budgetary constraints, uh, <laughs> so we didn't, we didn't get a, a complete list of all of the words you need to see right. uh, and identify before you get to full liberation. Yeah. So uh, that sounds like book two. Yeah. 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, sequel. Um, and anything you want to just leave with listeners with, like any things that you want them to be particularly vigilant of, um, like a top five maybe? The top five, like the worst top five worst yeah, most words. Yeah, dangerous or most annoying. Yeah. Um. Well, most yeah, I think most annoying um, and most dangerous, because to me they those are it's kind of synonymous. I think the is passion. Passion yeah. might be the <laughs> might be my least favorite, just because you know it's such a. Um, potentially good word <laughs> um, that's been um, that's been kind of abused so much and um, I agree with that one passionately passionately agree with that yeah creative is particularly terrible I mean whether in the noun form that Gabe was using or just uh, as an adjective to describe the creative economy um yeah, and then just like innovation. I mean, innovation is the, that's the mother of all of these words. It's the, where it all started, you know, because I was walking around and like seeing innovation everywhere and trying to figure out why this stupid word that didn't really mean anything and was being just kind of um, thrown around so widely, you know, the, the vagueness of it first irritated me. And then the um, the 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 way that it's kind of celebrated just wealth and profit making as this kind of like prophetic kind of spiritual endeavor really offended me. But yeah, I mean, to me, like part of the pleasure of working on this because it's at times been like really irritating and really demoralizing <laughs> to read Forbes.com and the Harvard Business can I, Review. Can I say something though? Yeah, You've yeah. Shown a lot of grit. Uh, you took my line, yeah. Thanks. Following through. Thank, grit, thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, there's no, like, everywhere you turn, it's... The... <laughs> exactly. Really disruptive. <laughs> Provide a lot of data. But, yeah, what was I saying before you disrupted my, before you disrupted my shit game? This was, um, <laughs> this was uh, it was a, uh, this was a long road and there were a lot of peaks and valleys. Yeah, valleys right. And peaks. But, you know, the power of, um sharing your contempt for something is something I've really come to appreciate. Yes. Yeah. It's very important. We're working There's on this. There's a lot of solidarity there. I really think that's true. Yeah. I think that's where, uh, w at least it's one of the major places where solidarity comes from is a shared hatred of something or somebody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, Donald Trump. Yeah. Not so we're fans of his, but that's not, I think some libs think that that's how we're going to change the world. By celebrating our hatred of him. Yeah, yeah, Cheeto. just making Which fun of him. Like a, it, yeah, it's like impotently uh, complaining about a sitcom that you don't like. like <laughs> yeah, that is what. Really, 
Yeah, that is and what it's like. And also that everyone who loves that sitcom just loves more every time they hear it attacked. Yeah, like it's it seems like there's this uh, anger towards him that doesn't necessarily translate to wanting to affect change in terms of structure or policies. Right, as long it's, as we get rid of him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This will be better if we get rid of the orange monster. Exactly. And as long as we get the norms back. Exactly. Yeah. The language, the suits, not the orange skin. I mean, I'm on this list here where people are like, speaking of language, they're like, we need to brand. We need to brand. We need a name for him because he's so good at those things. You know, Lying Ted, yeah. um, Crooked Hillary, <laughs> uh, Crazy Bernie. And all these people are trying to come up with these names for him, like Don the Con. <laughs> and it's like they just seem like uncool parents. Yeah, trying to rap. Wasn't like, there a freestyle battle? Didn't um the Democratic Party come up with something like really corny? Like maybe it was during the election, but it was something like Devious Donald or like. Oh my God. <laughs> like that sounds like a great card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was some. It was some like you know alliteration with D, like dumb right. Donald, something right. like that. Well, yeah, it's dreadful time. <laughs> when he called him Drumpf, that yeah. was like the, the lowest point. That have yeah, maybe we can just or say his name in a Russian accent. <laughs> turn, the, turn the R. I'm surprised people haven't done that. Turn the R around in Trump. Oh, they have done that. I've seen, oh, I've seen mugs for sale with that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dude, somebody, somebody is capitalizing. Someone's really, that's an innovation right there. But that's a great it, Well, it is an innovation, yeah. Yeah. And that's a great example of language, right? Because as long as you use the correct words, you can have Trump's policies as long yeah. as you're respectful and have decorum yeah. and use the right words. And we'll just come back with someone like George Bush. Yeah. And as long as you're not using vulgar words, you'll be fine. Yeah. And I mean, those kinds of, um, you know, polite uh, words that, um, that characterize like the norms that some people miss so much are, you know, they're just like ways of evading right. what we well, should actually be talking about. Yeah. I, I think it's really important sometimes to really get a consultant in there to help uh, <laughs> find, you know, uh, fissure points where we are, we can see the redundancies yeah. and perhaps uh, make a reduction in our human capital <laughs> to maximize. Yeah. Yeah. The redundancies, those poor redundancies. Maybe talk to human resources. Yeah. I mean, human resources is also a creepy yeah. term for the same reason that human capital is. Personnel, right? What's that? Wasn't it, called, it used to be called personnel? Yeah, and human resources is supposed to make it sound more um, loving and caring and respectful right. of the, the people that are what really make a company work, you know? Right. But it, but it suggests to me, it suggests, you know, it should suggest the total opposite of that. Human resources is kind of like the uh, reverse bizarro world version of having a union rep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Instead yeah. of going to your union rep to talk about your issues, you have to go to human resources to get psychologically evaluated and fired. <laughs> right. <laughs> to get redundified, red, <laughs> made redundant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then meritocracy, of course, is our favorite. Hamilton meets Hillary meets one shot. Yeah. And meritocracy is such a weird one because it was originally coined actually as a criticism of the idea of meritocracy that people now celebrate. So it was coined as a, as a combination of merit and aristocracy, and it was coined as a joke, and now it's been embraced right. as representing the very thing it was trying to criticize in the first place. It's like one of the, you know, all-time kind of failed satirical <laughs> satirical <laughs> ventures. So, you know, some of this sort of uh, shows me that the uh, late capitalism is a little bit like the thing from, um, uh, like the, from the horror movie, where it can take any of these terms and, you know, digest them <laughs> and then sort of reappropriate them and spit them out yeah. as a simulation of w the benign, uh, like, you know, what it was yeah. but now. But it's, it's just a benign face to this sort of parasitic monster. Yeah, that, no, that's totally what it is. Yeah, the be, sucking, like, sort of vital fluids out of something 
and then spitting out the like husk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is yeah. kind of how it works. <laughs> because when when we say choice, like I just think about you know I go I go see Black Panther, which is a you know celebration of <laughs> black empowerment. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> and then uh, you know where they're you know uh, T'Challa kills uh, Killmonger, who's like the only real radical, mm-hmm. and he sides with the white CIA agent. But before the movie even starts, there's a there's a an ad for like Coca Cola, and it's an empowered young uh, white woman uh, strutting down the street. And she has the choice of what uh, color can she wants her Coca-Cola to come in. But it feels so, like, extra empowering <laughs> until you get to the moment where the, you see that the whole slam poem that she's presenting is about what color Coke can. Wait, so what are the options? I, you know, you can get, like, a nice magenta or, like, a purple, like, an orange, you know, like a tangerine <laughs> color can. It's great. It's great. So yeah, I mean that's the world we live in. It's like what flavor, what color can do you want your soft drink to come in? Yeah, and in, and like at the end of Black Panther, when <laughs> the 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 way that that movie imagines the the revolution, the revolutionary like transformation is just sort of opening a com- nonprofit to like teach coding or something in. Right. It's like code or die for the uh, yeah Oakland uh, underprivileged kids in Oakland. Yeah, and it's if I remember if I saw it right and I remembered it right, <laughs> it was also in the very abandoned public housing building where the film started, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. So we're replacing public housing with like Coding. learn to code or some shit like that, yeah. and that's like the that's like how the movie imagines uh, you know radical social change happening. That's liberation. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I mean, I couldn't. That that kind of knocked me out when I saw that, and and it and it's it, yeah. So it's a good example. That's a good example of the the thing operating that you're talking about. When when reading this book, I, I think of capitalism as not it's an ideology, but it's also ideologies have a religious component to them, and yeah. you know it's just yeah. the biggest cult. Yeah. And uh, I'm reading this book, and I'm thinking about Scientology and going clear, mm-hmm. and how. You know, the way that you indoctrinate people into a, a belief system is that you give them uh, a new vocabulary, a new lexicon that doesn't expand the possibilities in their imagination, but reduces them and sort of frames the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, so that's why, I, you know, I'm, I'm praising this book and I, I think people should read it for that to to see the prison yeah. uh, <laughs> that, that we've created, the matrix of of uh, language. The linguistic matrix of capitalism is is clearly outlined in this book. Yes. Well, thank and you. It re- and it reminds me of, just a final thought, it reminds me of what's the line, and not to quote uh, the usual suspects as a, as a major part of the canon or anything, but uh, what is it, the biggest trick the devil ever played was to convince people he didn't exist? Yes. Right. So... It remind, it's like the biggest trick capitalism ever played was to convince people it wasn't an ideology. Yeah, It was right. just a thing. Like, it's just a system. Mm-hmm. Same thing with free market. Like, it's just there, and we all know it's not, and that there's all this intervention. Um, right. But, like, we're the ideologues, and they're the pragmatists. Right, 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 right. Allegedly. But. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that's fraying more and more than it yes. than I can remember and that's why I'm like weirdly optimistic even though I'm glad that I don't live in the United States right now also yeah well thank you so much for this um, robust passionate <laughs> leading innovating inclusive in- fo- grit oh yeah inclusive uh, would be a good one I didn't talk about that one though oh yeah so that's one of the ones that's missing very competent conversation um, that was just very well curated, and there was a lot of, uh, it was very engaging. Well, the curation was all you guys, so thank oh, you. thank you. That's thanks. We're nimble yeah. curators. Yeah. And uh, thanks for your resilience, and thanks so much for, for uh, sharing, for the share. Thanks for sharing this, yeah. Yeah. Very well, smart. Well, th- solutions. Well, thank you for sharing. You're cool. a thought leader. Where do we find you? Give us your Twitter. Uh, at John Pat Leary, J-O-H-N-P-A-T-L-E-A-R-Y. Do you have a website? Do you have anything else you need us to plug? The website is keywordsforcapitalism.com. 
everybody get it? Can can they get it on uh, Audible yet? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. All right, we got to work on that. Um, yeah, work on that. And it's a uh, Haymarket Haymarket Books. Here go, guys. You can get it cheaper from Haymarket than from Amazon. So get it don't from there. Amazon. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's so fun. Yours. Yeah. Thanks, get man. It. Good to see you again, Gabe. Haven't seen yeah, you in a while. I'll yeah. visit you in Portugal. I know. Let's do a live taping of the show in Lisbon. I love Lisbon. Nah, the best. The best. Thanks. Bye. Thank Bye, you. guys. Bye. Bye. Also, very exciting news about John Pat Leary is he is now a columnist at the New Republic. So make sure you check out his essays there. Also, make sure that you follow him on Twitter, where he is John Pat Leary, J O H N P A T L E A R Y. And of course, by keywords. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. You can hear The Katie Helper Show on iTunes and SoundCloud, and please rate and review us on iTunes. Of course, you can find extra material, bonus episode, extended interviews at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Make sure you become Patreon supporters so you can hear John explaining why he wrote the book and reading some of his favorite terms from the book. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. Thank you.